0: This is Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Hello, and welcome to Dialogue Sunday Gospel Study today, August 22nd, 2021, with the amazing assemblage artist Paige Turner, drawing from section 89 of the Doctrine and Covenants, which she titles Wordlessness of Wisdom. I am Linda Hoffman Kimball, conducting today on behalf of the Dialogue Foundation Board. Other board members, Michael Austin and Chris Kimball, are part of our group today in the background. Kiff Augustine is helping moderate today. She presented a gospel topics discussion earlier this year. We are using our webinar format on Zoom and running a live stream on Facebook, and we are recording this program. For viewers on Zoom, there is a chat function by which you can comment, ask questions and propose answers and introduce questions from Facebook. Uh, We do follow comments on Facebook and introduce questions from Facebook when that's appropriate. In the first journal, the first issue of the dialogue journal, founder Eugene England wrote, "'My faith encourages my curiosity and awe.'" It thrusts me out into relationship with all creation and encourages me to enter into dialogue. Before I wax on a little more about uh, Jean and Dialogue Foundation, I think that that quote from Jean England really ties to Paige Turner and how she explores and envisions and presents to us her, her view and take and offering of the world. So we are in for a treat. To fulfill Jean's vision in the 21st century, we have made the current journal, all 55 years of archived issues and all of our new digital offerings, including this gospel study series, our podcasts and other features entirely free for online users. This has meant moving away from a subscription model of funding. We have spent the past few years figuring out a digital model for, the Dialogue Found- how, for how the Dialogue Foundation can work. We have set a budget and made a plan and are asking for your help in creating a fund that secures the future of dialogue. You can find more about sustaining dialogue at givetodialogue.com. We also have an email address dedicated to this campaign, and the address is sustainingdialogue at dialoguejournal.com For our lesson today, I am thrilled to introduce my artful soul sister, Paige Turner. She collects items of deep personal meaning to painstakingly create delicate objects that honor the feminine, along with the desires, experiences, and roles of women. Her powerful and unique assemblages include found objects such as fur, wood, shells, paper, and bone, that firmly position her work culturally and geographically in the Appalachian region. Paige stitches these objects together with family heirlooms, antique fabric and other personal objects by hand to create delicate sculptural pieces infused with a new feminist aesthetic and a soulful reverence for her heritage. Raised as a devout Mormon in Southwestern Virginia, her work is informed by her Mormon heritage and her feminist perspective. She looks to the religion and its complex history as inspiration and explores the divide between righteousness within the faith and women's personal power. With deep reverence, she pays homage to pioneer women of the Mormon faith, as well as the contemporary sisterhood of her Appalachian community's pioneer sisters. Page has invited Heather Harris-Bergevin to assist in today's discussion. Heather manages her life and that of several others from the front seat of a Prius. Sometimes she writes stuff, usually poetry. For example, her book Lawless Women was published by BCC Press. She's liable to break into show tunes at any time and perhaps even among us. I don't know. She's, uh, and she's always simping over Tom Hiddleston's voice. Okay, that's an experience I have yet to have. Thank you, Heather, for tipping me off on that. Her hobbies include avoiding vacuuming, fixing her sewing machine, and figuring out how to get resin and gold leafing off her countertops. Heather knows a little bit about almost everything and always wants to know more. She lives in South Carolina with three kids, two cats, and a dog. She just discovered that magnolias are edible. She says she's sometimes funny, but I think most of the time, 99%. She is funny. <laughs> Thanks, Heather. Uh, yeah, yeah, We are pleased to have Paige Turner and also Heather Harris-Bergevin and Kif Augustine with us today. As with every speaker and participant, we invite each speaker for their personal insights, for their own voice. We each speak for ourselves here today not for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and not for BYU, and not for the Dialogue Foundation. So on with our wonderful program. We will open today with the the song What Wondrous Love by a trio of Miriam Stay, Kristen Washburn-Juarez, and Andy Pitcher Davis. The music was arranged, performed, and recorded in the Kirtland Temple two years ago. All of the images of the interior of the temple were taken by Andy Pitcher Davis with the express permission of Lack McKay, a member of the First Presidency of the Community of Christ, uh, who and the Community of Christ and Locke himself are based in independence. Our opening prayer will be a video of a visual prayer by Lauren Walk, who is an illustrator living among the folklore and trees of Appalachia. She creates art on ritual, based on ritual stories and aspects that call loudly to her. Today's lesson will open with a five-minute video that Paige Turner has prepared, and then harris, uh, Heather harris Bergevin will take us through the video slide by slide to open a discussion. This is going to be so much fun. I can't wait. So I'll hurry through this. At the end of our discussion and exploration today, we will enjoy Grandma's Kitchen, which was also written and recorded in the Kirtland Temple with the permission of and hosted by the Community of Christ. This brief fiddle tune was composed as a thank you gift. All images in this short piece were created by Paige Turner. And following that song, the closing prayer will be an improvisational Sunday morning prayer by Esther America Caron. Esther America Caron is the former dancer for Montreal's renowned Le Grand Ballet Canadien. I hope I'm not butchering that too much. She has been teaching dance for over a decade in the Ottawa, Canada region. She's the mother of five children, all of whom love to dance with her. In fact, I was honored to be at an event where she and her brand new baby were dancing together. It was splendid. Born in the church, Esther served a mission in Madagascar and Reunion Island, and still loves to serve. And she still loves to serve in her ward in Gatineau, Quebec. Dance has always been a way for Esther to express her love and her gratitude to God. So, after that closing prayer, um, uh, I'll just say this now, so you can keep it in the back of your mind. This this evening, this is a, a tangent. At 6 p.m. Mountain Time. The Woodsoe Foundation and the Maxwell Institute are sponsoring a conversation about the Word of Wisdom with Rick Turley, Kate Holbrook, and Sam Brown, our friends. And you can find the details at a link that we will put in the chat on the um, Zoom chat function. And now we will turn our time to the ladies.
1: Okay.
2: There's a little right. bit more to that video we missed. There is.
1: I was thinking that there would be, uh, of Lawrence? No. Uh,
2: I think of Lawrence, but of, of also there's a little bit more of, of that video. We can go through it with the slides. Let's just
1: go through it with the slides because it'll be fine. Um, I wanted to say in advance, I have um, already looked to see if my parents are here, which makes me only just like that much nervous. But the rest of y'all, Y'all don't scare me. My parents, not scary, but you know, had a little flashback to being in high school when I would like listen for my dad clear his throat whenever we would do a choir performance or anything. Cause when you're standing on the stage, you can't see if they're there, but like you can listen. I could always hear if they were there. So I was like, Oh, they're here. Oh no, they're here. So. <laughs> Um, Where should we start, Paige? You wanted me to start reading at the beginning of the first slide. Michael, do you want to start bringing that for us? Yeah, let's go ahead and cue that up. Also, I wanted to tell you, I noticed noticed before, but I noticed specifically going through just now how well everything was just kind of like set forth. And I thought, you know, I really wanted to make sure to mention that you had done a lot of really good work in advance to make sure that, that it was visually pleasing you know such as this slide but also the others that that they they kind of move almost into animated fashion like they're very they're very easy to go through. Okay. Do you, do you want to talk about this art piece that you've made because I think it's really gorgeous?
2: Sure. I'll 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 open up with that. So, when I was asked to uh to explore section 89, I I read it, you know, with fresh eyes. Um, with the intention of, of of really really reading it and trying to understand it rather than anything that I had heard or cultural connotations that, that sort of thing. So I really approached it with, with a freshness. And you know I, I read through it you know right right out, out, out the gate and immediately to me it looked like instructions on how to create the right circumstances to have a transformative experience. If that's a religious experience um, or you know, possibly in any kind of transformative experience. And one of the things that I noticed is that these instructions fall um, very similar to my personal creative practice and my art practice. So I took these instructions uh, very literally and I, um, I I created a, a bit of an exper- experiment where I went through these instructions and I spent time in the woods with uh, Section 89 on my mind and um, repeatedly, you know, going back out back out to the woods, which is you know my sacred space. And when I came back and came back to my workbench. I manipulated the objects that I had collected and some of the, the, the objects that spoke to me, you know, from, from my, my previous collections and on my workbench. And this assemblage piece uh, came to be, and the title that, that also kind of came with it through this experience was the wordlessness of wisdom. And as someone who communicates mostly through visual arts, um, having that, the the gift of wisdom that I received from this experience was a validation that my wordlessness does have more than what I thought because I can't put my experience into um, words beyond just a description. Right.
1: Um, I mean, so
2: yeah. So this this is kind of the, the 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 gift of wisdom that came to me from this exploration, and with that I used the same objects to create um, this video. And I'm sure we can post a link, uh, you know, a link to it that you can yeah. watch it a little slower. I know I crammed a lot of text in, and so we're gonna go slide by slide um, and discuss that. But thank you. All of all of the art is. Um, things that I have made and manipulated, and and that you know, kind of form maybe my my visual language. Mm-hmm. I, I well, I love I love your assemblages because I love
1: collage, and it for me because I'm not with it, and I can't see it in person. From my standpoint, what I end up seeing is more of structural sculptural collage yes. photography. Um, just because that's what I, I end up getting to experience. But I love looking at all the little individual pieces and realizing, you know, that they came from where you live on the mountain and um, and different things that you have collected, which have such a, an interesting visual I- impact. I'm, I mean, just being me, it, this makes me think of um, both kind of the concept of like, what are you going to bring to the table? Mm-hmm. Not like, you know, what are you feeding people at dinner as much as what is your intent? What are you bringing? And, um, and the kind of platform structure is being like, in my mind, almost being like a a meditational seat, you know, like that you're sitting, and you're going to sit with this, and you're going to think on it, and, um, and see what you personally, in an isolated way, you know, because everybody has their own little, little section. So, um, Michael, we're going to go to I'm going to read pretty quickly through the next four slides until we get to the quote. And then we'll read the two quotes and speak of them. Does that sound good, Paige? Yeah. Okay. Uh, DNC 89, February. uh, Oh, maybe not that quick. I can, I can go that quick. I'm I'm fast. (laughs) The wordlessness of wisdom of, of DNC 89. Next. DNC 89, um, we know that it was uh, first written down February of 1833, specifically February 27th, because I looked that up, um, Kirkland, Ohio. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I thought that I heard someone had a comment. Um, Gathering the Saints in New Jerusalem. And then next.
2: And the Saints are leaving New York and... Coming to Kirtland.
1: Right. Um, searching for historical context. Um, Paige says, I, I checked in with a few of my favorite Mormon historians Richard Bushman, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, Maxine Hanks, and Ferris Medden. And, um, and that amazes me that you can check in with these names because I'm just, you know, out here in the wilderness, just kind of fangirling over all of these people all the time. Next, Michael. Um, early church history in the 1830s, um, Kirkland, Ohio. Uh, Joseph is the seer. Uh, the Saints are in the process of migrating to Kirkland, which is a place that is supposedly welcoming
2: to religious seekers
1: of all kinds. So that's kind of the goal. Yeah,
2: Heather, do you want to talk about some of the broader historical um, context? Um, well, Not necessarily you... about Kirtland, but kind of you know, kind of give us a, 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 a quick frame of um, of of this end of the Victorian um time period yeah I'm I'm such a nerd I I
1: I have a ongoing theory that like most of anything that anybody quibbles about in the church goes back to like what middle class Victorian values were at the time that were based of, of early Victorian going into middle Victorian age which is the 1830s to 1860s um and that uh a lot of things were things that people just thought were normal You know, like now you'll always, you know, read little internet Tumblr posts and stuff that are like, you know, in in 50 years, somebody's going to read a recipe and it's going to say, put in an egg and people are going to be like a duck egg, a quail egg. Like what kind of egg? Like I've got access to lots of different eggs. What egg do you want? And all of us are gonna be like chicken egg. Everybody knows that. And it's the same if you read, you know, 200 year old recipes and they're like, well, add, you know, a, a pinch of this and a you know a, a smattering of that, and you're just like, that's not accurate enough for me. I don't know what it is. It was culturally normal at those times, so why would they need to write those things down? And um, and and that that's you know that's kind of um, what's happening here as well with a lot of um, the with the Great Awakening, uh, with the things that the people people are starting to either question what is normal. Culturally, and they're going well. I don't really. That doesn't sit well with me. We're going to do something different, or they're really um, what we like to think of as a seeker. Uh, They're they're questioning those things, and then they're like, "Well, there's got to
2: be a better way. Maybe we can, maybe we can figure out a better way." And starting to kind of blend science, new science information with mysticism. Right. Well, and we have to remember too, like when part of my research this week
1: um, was going into like the temperance societies, which I think we're going to talk about later. And, um, and specifically we have to remember that these people didn't have germ theory, you know, and, and, and in 200 years from now, people are going to be like, man, they didn't even know about this. You know, it's just, it is what it is. They didn't have germ theory. They still were working on the concept of the four humors and, and that sort of thing. So they they were trying with they were doing absolutely all that they could do, um, specifically in their seeking with all of the information that they had at the time and and this was um, going into like the temperance uh, union timescale and things like that. This was their newest information. This was their their new science. It was right. right. It was fancy and, and, and exciting
2: and hot. And hot. Yeah.
1: Well, and I mean, and if you think about it, they were really trying to add in, um, they were trying to add in things like, uh, I mean, they're already getting plenty of exercise, but they were trying to add in things like making sure that they were taking care of their bodies and being really good stewards of their bodies, um, in order to, uh, maintain their spiritual focus. There was a lot more to do with that as well with temperance, but, um, but they really wanted to be able to have the best and most uh, the most perfect form that they could have yeah. and that didn't necessarily mean that everybody looked alike or that everybody was you know one particular stature but they really wanted they wanted this perfection um because they were they were seeking this religious perfection right, right. and um and that there, and there's a, a lot of different uh, variations of temperance, uh, um, I don't want to say diets, but, but the goal was they, to perfect the form and the mind and spiritual practice through the use of, you know, food and, and things like that. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's not like any of us try to do that today. Right. I mean, nobody does that now. That's just obviously old science. (laughs) Um, Michael, I think we could go to the next one. All right, these are the two beautiful quotes. Um The outbursts of religious enthusiasm point to the existence of a widespread visionary population hungering for more of God than standard church worship provided. Um and that's from Richard Bushman in Rough Stone Rolling uh, 147. Um Talk to me about what that means to you.
2: So Richard talks of, you know, kind of starts to paint a picture of what's happening, um, not only with the saints, but with the people in kind of the, the larger zeitgeist of the early 1830s. And, you know, like you had said, this idea of a seek of, of people seeking and hungering, um, it, it, it feels to me like everyone kind of caught the bug. Of, of, of wanting to know to know more.
1: No, I agree. And I think that, um, I think sometimes we discount that a little too much now, Yeah, uh, because we, we have the same, I mean, the same as the Puritans that they were like, you don't have to know why, just do the thing. You know, I mean, if you read any Nathaniel Hawthorne, if you you could see the people going, okay, but I don't know why we do this. Why do we do this? Do we do it right. this way? Do we do it this way? Like maybe, you know, there are some people there, there are lots of people that receive information to their bodies and their minds and their spirits in different ways than I do. Absolutely, That doesn't necessarily mean that they are incorrect. It just means that their body responds to different things. It also doesn't mean that the spirit, it doesn't flow through my body in the correct manner. It means that my body and mind respond to different things. Like I was just listening to Andy sing and thinking, oh man, I have to talk after Andy sings. Can't we just listen to Andy's thing for like five or six more songs and be like, okay, we're good. You know,
2: because (laughs) you can can hear everything you need to hear.
1: Yeah, in cathedral ceilings, that's that's my jam right there. So We, we can go to the next slide. The early church in Kirkland, Ohio was shaped by the faith and religious excitement of men and women who felt connected to the divine in new and empowering ways. The first 50 years of the church's existence, the role of women was both present and fluid, ebbing and flowing from larger to smaller over and over as women with charisma, talent, faith, and powerful position moved in and out of the governing circles of authority. The first of these women was Joseph's mother, Lucy Max Smith, it was she who shaped Joseph's worldview in such a way as to allow even for the idea of a God who would reveal a primitive and pure religion. And that is, I cannot read. your That's person. from
2: Therese Sneedon's forthcoming book from University Illinois Press.
1: Oh, Megan. I got, I got
2: a sneak peek. <laughs>
1: I'm like, oh, what's the name of this forthcoming book? And can I get a copy of it? DVD. Like,
3: many... <laughs> We're
1: going to link me into that, right? And so then I'll I... play Andrew and be like, um, so I'm reviewing, reviewing this, right? That'd be a good fan.
2: Um, no. I okay. loved how she she explains that through this exploration that they, that it was Jointly done by both men and women. And then I love her final sentence about Joseph's mother, who is really where the foundation of this audacity to, to connect yourself and in your own way. And um, and, and that, that religion is pure and primitive. And and I I, I love that, that we learn that that's from his mother.
1: You know, I hadn't really thought about that in, I always like to think of things in context, which is what I've been all week long. Cause you know, we've been talking about that too. Um, I like to think of the timeline of things. And for me, this realization, sometimes I get fussy about, you know, oh, women weren't, you know, utilized in the church well enough at that time or whatnot. And, um, and I think the realization that this was basically, I mean, this is Puritan New England in the 1830s, coming from that comprehension, the whole value of women in puritanical systems was just shut up. That was all it was. And so this was a huge step away from that.
2: A it's audacious. Level. Like, yeah, I mean, it audacious. Have,
1: it, yeah, it would have been seen as like, not just, oh, you let your women speak and don't hang them, but what are you doing? Like right. your women are allowed to do these things or like, it just, it would have been confusing and very revolutionary for, especially for the time frame. Yeah. And I don't think that I really, before I started doing that research this week, I don't think I had really, contemplated that before like i had made the the puritan connection we know that we have a lot of puritanical roots but i i hadn't thought about that in that way so so we're gonna have a link to the the next slide link to the book is gonna go into the notes right all right (laughs) (laughs) all right so um the saints are creatively constructing their faith while using the new testament to reconstruct rituals purification and sanctification um, next, Michael. All right, from Ezra Booth. Um, when he first encountered Mormonism, he saw it as the restoration of the apostolic church with all of the gifts and graces enjoyed in New Testament times, including the promise of signs and wonders. And that's also from Rough Stone Rolling, right? Um, I always think about this one, just that that concept. People are always we we want to read the Book of Mormon and the and the Bible, and we look at those things and think, well, it would be nice if like we could get to that. This this is what they thought was going to happen. They thought all of the you know visual signs and symbols and and not not that there was symbol. They didn't think that it was symbolism that like people had flames or or whatnot. They they're thinking there's going to be a flame on my building. This is going to be Exactly the way that these things happen, right? Right,
2: right. And they were, they were using the New Testament as a touchstone for how they creatively create their faith. I mean, so it's, it's this creativity and audacity, but with a foundation and a touchstone to the New Testament into Jesus, you know, Jesus's time specifically, which, which I, th- I, I think is at least worth, worth, worth noting. We can yes. go to the next slide too. We, we picked this up.
1: <laughs> uh, early church history, the saints began to consecrate oils, uh, washings, blessing meetings, healing by laying on the hands of speaking in tongues and having
2: visions. And next, my month- so I think it's important to note that the priesthood has not fully been established. Um, I, I don't think the endowment has fully been established. and the Saints are just starting to, um, to utilize consecration of oil and um, which again is this touchstone back to the New Testament. And Joseph didn't have access to frankincense and myrrh, and so they used cinnamon. And you know, taught taught each other how to um, how to consecrate the oil and how to how to how to take a tangible thing and imbue it with something spiritual. And again, with that grounding foundation in the New Testament, um, also.
1: Well, that's really cool. I didn't know that, especially about the cinnamon. Don't get that in your eyes. But that would be complicated. <laughs> um, from Elizabeth Ann Whitney's account, we know that women in the early church were were ordained set apart and given authority to give blessings and perform healings. They anointed with oil, sealed blessings used to, to laying on the hands and uttered the blessings of prayer. and um, that's from Maxine Hanks, women's women in authority. Um, can we get a link for that also when we do that? We'll put that link in the um, in the notes as well um do you want to talk about this one
2: um i mean I, I think this one's self-explanatory i mean this is just kind of setting the stage that like you know it's not it's not just a priesthood um right. e- exploration of these gifts and these these rituals especially like the participants are both men and women at this time and i i just think it's it's, it's of an important uh historical context
1: it is it's a very cool thing in history that i didn't know about till i was like 37. So right. I went to BYU. <laughs> um, next slide, Michael. By spring of 1836, the saints had begun to congregate outside of Kirkland Temple to recreate the experiences of the temple dedication. These gatherings became known as blessing meetings and they became commonplace in Mormon communities throughout the rest of the century. Participants would hope for and encourage outpourings of the spirit, speaking in tongues, blessings for comfort, healing, and prophecy. The conferral of these blessings could be done by a man or a woman and both could lay hands on bless someone of the opposite gender. Um, and that changed later on. It became far more common. Women gave women blessings only because, at the time, if I remember correctly from my research or reading prior, you at the time you had a tendency, especially for blessings of healing, to bless what was hurting. Mm-hmm. So you know, if it was um, a woman's body that was not something at the time frame that a man would be right right allowed to touch it. Right. And, any portion of her body, really, um, if she was not his wife and if other people needed to come and help give a blessing that wasn't gonna be happening. Mm -hmm. So, um, so, yeah. So the
2: thing I, I think is important about this is, so this is a few months after the Word of Wisdom revelation. This is 1836. And the saints are trying to recreate the experience that they had at that temple dedication. And I think that there's something important when you look at Section 89 and you see it as this list of instructions on how to have a transformative experience, it, it in my opinion, it looks like the formula to recreate these awesome and amazing experiences that that they're having and having right. independently and together. So that that recreation, um, you know, to. Yeah, the, the the recreation is 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 the the point of of this,
1: right? Because they had had this amazing experience in in the dedicatory um, process of right. of the temple. I mean, it's been this astounding thing. Um, you know, we're told that even like babes shouted out during the Hale-yuk, uh right. and and. So, I mean, who doesn't want to, if you've ever had a really, really powerful spiritual experience, it can be really easy to then later be like, well, am I just not good enough to do that again? Cause like, I'd like that feeling because nobody doesn't want that feeling. Nobody doesn't want that feeling of like, here I am. I am with God. God adores me and I can feel the power of that. And, um, and nobody wants to be like, well, I mean, I'm here.
2: Okay, we're going to have to run through some slides a little quicker. (laughs) Yep, let's go do that.
1: Um, The saints are beginning to explore spiritual gifts, Pentecostal-like. We can can go fast, yep. The saints embraced sentimental poetry, phrenology, the herb lobelia, brass bands, mechanical gadgets, and speaking in tongues. We know what some of those things are. Uh, We still use a lot of sentimental poetry in the church. Phrenology is uh, study the
2: bumps on your head.
1: Yeah. It's studying, yeah. Bumps, which was very normal at that time. Labelia Do you know labelia? It's
2: uh, called puke weed and that's what it'll make you do. <laughs> well, Hey, that sounds great. Yep.
1: <laughs> um, so yeah. All right. Next slide. mechanical gadgets during that time frame a lot of times that meant like automate automated things like kind of robotics and stuff like that that's really cool um in joseph's church gifts of the spirit were not gendered god could bestow them upon any worthy individual male or female uh, nor were spiritual gifts contingent on holding the priesthood a requirement that would have excluded all women anyone could heal in the name of jesus christ Many members recorded days of Pentecostal-like manifestations and the newly endowed men performed miraculous healings. They still persist in their power to work miracles. They say that they have often seen them done, the sick are healed, the lame walk, the devils are cast out. And these assertions are made by men, too, considered rational men and men of truth. And, um, and this is from the forthcoming book also, right? Um, and it's it's Farah, yes. is that right? Okay, I'm just making sure, and Sneddon.
2: S N E D D O N. Needed. Maybe she'll chime in. <laughs> we, we can we can go to the next slide. I think that one is self-explanatory.
1: Yeah, I just want to make sure we get the names right because yeah. she's. I it, I love her work apparently so far. Um, let's see. During this time period, this Joseph creates the School of the Prophets, um, which is you know the link back to Samuel, Elijah, um, Elijah. Um, and Isaiah, and this is the implication of the preparation for the holy work and they're, they're getting everybody ready to know what they're to do for leadership. Right. Next, Michael. Ah, uh, the school of the prophets—a house of prayer, a house of fasting, a house of faith, a house of learning, a house of glory, a house of order, a house of God. The school of the prophets was the prototype for the good society, a fraternity united by study and by faith. And that's from Rutherford and Ruling, also. Um, next slide. Uh, yeah. Next slide. Uh, Joseph is exploring the idea of the purification of the body,
2: and what you talked life. about earlier.
1: Oh, next. Right. Joseph's religion made the body essential to human fulfillment and godliness. Joseph exalted the body rather than seeking to free the spirit from the flesh. I think that's pretty important, just, you know, we can go to the next slide, but I think that's really important, that concept that it wasn't like you could only be a soul, only your soul could be good.
2: Yeah, this connection of mind, body, and spirit, I mean, is being interwoven in in specifically within, within the saints. Yeah, we can go to the next slide.
1: All right. Revelation had said priesthood holders would be sanctified by the spirit until the renewal of their bodies. A few months later, a revelation promised that their bodies would be filled with light. To refine their bodies, a revelation received a month after the School of Prophets began, um, advised the men to give up tobacco and alcohol. The revelation counseled a diet of wholesome herbs, fruits and grains, and spare to, and spare us of meat. To, and so meat sparingly, yeah. Um, all who conformed were promised health in their navel and marriage to the bones. Their bodies would be vigorous and their minds active. Uh, quoting Isaiah, the revelation promised the observant that they will run and not be weary and walk and not faint, but also that they would find wisdom and great treasure and knowledge. Okay, know next slide. slide. Okay, oh, and going. then the next, after keep that, we can, <laughs> we can take the next one's pretty quick because we're just going to keep reading. Yeah, yeah. Adopted to help um, even the weakest find purification. And next. Um, it was to be an instruction and warning about trusting the hearts of conspiring um, people. Oops, did I read that correctly? Yes. Okay. Said folk. I have, I have, I have, um, I have pop-ups of comments, which is awesome. But <laughs> they were popping up in the wrong place. Uh, next. Oh, I'm sorry that they were. Um, for bodies and minds, I'll go back, I'll read that myself, I'm sorry, uh, via, it, they were instructions preparing body and mind via dietary suggestions, including what to feed animals um, that we eat or sacrifice. And we have to remember that Joseph was in the process of reading through and doing translation in the Old Testament during that time period also. Um, and that the instructions are a reminder to give thanks and to use prudence, next. Um, the promise is that you'll have health in the, in the navel and marrow and the bones, um, run and not be weary, that you'll have wisdoms, treasure of knowledge, and um, salvation and sanctification. All right. And then we're going to go two forward. And I want you to read this page. Can you read this?
2: Sure. With- so after I realized the text was about guidance on how to have a transformative experience, I, I made a couple of phone calls and talked to some folks who happened to be, you know, happened to identify as as Mormon, and they also happened to be a potter, a midwife, and a mule skinner, which is a, a blacksmith. Um, so, and and these these people not only are LDS, but they hold these these creative um, and transformative O- occupations. They also, each one individually, have worked in their life to be a um, a guide. With, with people through transformative experiences, some with um, sweat lodges and smoke ceremony, vision quests. And then, of cur- course, I would imagine, um, you know, giving birth is one of the, you know, pinnacles of transformative experiences. And, and so good. when I asked each one of them to describe, you know, when you're going to walk someone, you know, when you're going to be a guide and walk someone through this, what instructions do you give? And not asking about a, a you know, section 89, but they, my notes, they all, All gave me the same list of instructions that is mirrored in section 89, which I found to be fascinating. We can go to the next slide. So they all talked about there needing to be a willingness to walk this journey, that the importance of preparing not only your body, but preparing your mind um, exercising your mind to be open and present and also clear and, um, and aware, which is a, a contradiction and a challenge all in itself. Um, you also need to be prepared to push your body through elected discomfort. Um, and that you also should be cautious of who you carry with you on, on this journey. And then each one of them, um, rem- with that same reminder, to bring an offering and to give thanks. We can go to the next slide.
1: I love that idea of elected discomfort because it yeah. brings in the concept of, of consent. It's like you you have to want to do this. You're not going to right, gonna
2: right, right. Absolutely. Somebody force like step you one, to do it. Be yeah. willing. Yeah. And so all of these guides also spoke of the same promise. And the same promise that is listed in section eighty nine, that um, you know, when you prepare yourself and open your mind, you will receive gifts of knowledge. And that, then, and, and also a warning was that those that wisdom may not be given in language or confined by words. We can go to the next slide.
1: All right, on the fifth of April, eighteen thirty five. Um, says Eliza R. Snow, I was baptized by a Mormon elder in the evening of that day. I realized the baptism of the Spirit as sensibly as I did of that water in the stream. I had retired to bed and I was reflecting on the wonderful events transpiring around me. I felt an indescribable, tangible sensation, if I may so call it, commencing at my head and enveloping my person and passing off at my feet, producing inexpressible happiness. And um, this is from Daughters of Light by Carolyn Pearson,
2: correct? Yes. So I love that Eliza, who is our poetess, was left without words. We can go to the next slide.
1: (laughs) Um, Sarah Sturtevant Levitt could scarcely express the depth of her conviction after her baptism as a Latter-day Saint in the 1830s. I had something of more importance that was shut up like fire in my bones.
2: And it's a beautiful way to try to describe that experience, yeah. but even still, it's you there there's no words. Next yeah. next slide, Mike. Oh, would you read this page so that certainly. Yeah. Um, so treasures of knowledge, even hidden treasures, which is the promise. Um, from 89, uh, when I got to thinking about wisdom, I realized it's utterly grounded in experience and perspective. We can go to the next slide. And so with our experiences, we, we all of the input is through our senses, which these are six sense of, of our physical senses. And we know that we, we really have about 20 senses that all um, you know are are what culminate in our experience and our perspective. Right. Next slide. And so, for me, one of the revelations that that came from my experience is that often we cram all of these senses through one lens, which is language. And um, y- you know, for for me, it it. It helped me to understand why I struggle with words that I and and recognize that I have more going on from those experiences and those senses than just language. Next slide.
1: Yeah, we talk about that a lot in our family because not everyone in our family experiences uh the witness of the spirit in the same way. Yeah. You know, of that concept of the burning and the boat. So I'm not everybody's gonna get that. Yeah. But you know, with Eli, we talk about if you're getting a glitchy feeling, you know, like.
2: Right. How to have words you know. to those, th- those senses. Yeah. Yeah. It's there, a challenge. There might not be. Right. And I'm learning to be more okay with that. So this slide says, uh, wisdom is not confined by language. And uh, it's, it's a chat. It's a challenge. And, and so I think, you know, cutting our, ourselves a little, a little slack is, is helpful. We could go to the next slide.
4: So can I jump in for a minute with a question from the chat? David Sandberg asks, what are a few of the senses beyond the six that were listed? The ones that we're most familiar with um, from our-
2: uh, I read a Psychology Today article a couple weeks ago that said something about, you think you have five senses and then we we've also added movement. When we're we're more learning that there's like twenty. So like intuition um, is is an actual sense. Um, you know when you just know something is is coming. That is a that's a perception of many of these other senses. Um, I don't think I answered your question.
1: <laughs> I think of other things too. Um we're finding that there are more and more people that have different variations of synesthesia. Yes. Um, and so, you know, not all of our brains are put together the same way. My, right. my middle child has the most amazing hearing that I've ever experienced. And my youngest is the loudest person that could ever be experienced. And, you know, um, we talk about like, you know, some people are really, really observant. I think that some of those things that we feel in our bodies and perceive in different ways, mm-hmm. um, go under that category. Yeah. Um, I mean, what they could be, you know, called synesthetic or not, that you're, that you are picking up on different things and feeling it as a bodily feeling right. or feeling it as an impression. And so,
2: the, so maybe this is back to Joseph's mind, body connection, where, we think it's these five senses that are our tangible senses, when in fact, there's just layers and layers and layers of, of the, that that connection between our body and our mind and our soul.
1: Well, and specifically that the word of wisdom, the, the goal of it all, overall, when they're working towards this perfection and trying to, it, it's refocusing the mind, it's refocusing the body. Right. What they're trying to do is find a conduit to make it possible for you to feel those enhanced versions of things. Um, you know, just the same way we talk about, you know, getting answers during fasting, right? We, um, it doesn't necessarily mean you need fast more. Some people do not, mm-hmm. but, um, but you can get answers in different ways when your body focuses in different ways. Yeah. And that's what they were looking for.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And that brings us to this next slide of, uh, you know, experiencing this, these transformative rites and rituals together creates an opportunity where, um, you know, we're all bonded by that experience. And that's, you know, I mean, that's something you can see in your life with, with all sorts of things. You know, we've all just gone through COVID. We will be bonded together, <laughs> you know, without, with, w- that's not bound by by words. Yeah. And then here, my one of my last slides is um you know the the wisdom that i found through this experience was um you know to to sit with the wordlessness and also part of the guidance from these guides that i consulted they you know they they said you 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 won't get your answer right away and you really have to sit with it and think about it and let it kind of be with you present and focused and also not focused and that that wisdom i mean it's not like you're not going to check a box but it will it will come <laughs> and um and that, that sitting with your experience is the most helpful thing and as a visual artist You know, I walked this experience and I had to make something that to your earlier point that I can focus on and be contemplative, which allows my my brain to look at something and focus. And then all of these other senses are, come. you know, I'm reliving the experiences through my senses while I've given my eyes something to rest on.
1: Yeah, I, I have a tendency to think on things that I'll, I'll get an, I'll have a spiritual experience and my brain, because of the way it works, and you know, the joy of ADHD, I'm right in there going, okay, let's analyze this. What does this mean? What does this mean? How about this? What does this mean this that you know, that that's what I'm doing?
2: And it's too loud. And you it's too to loud. Quiet it. And then when you quiet it, or for or, you know, the eureka, get into the bathtub you know, that's when that wisdom comes. So you have to hold it and walk with it and also let it loosely be. Oh yeah,
1: it's definitely going to happen in the shower at three o'clock in the morning. Yeah. I mean, that's that's when you get the real wisdom, right? <laughs> yeah,
2: absolutely, absolutely. Um, Next
1: slide. What, or have we finished our slides? I thought we had finished. I'm I sorry.
2: think there's maybe, keep going oh, one more.
1: Where's one more after this that you wanted to, yeah.
2: Yeah, special thank you. And then we can next slide. Thank you to dialogue. <laughs> I think that's it. Maybe there's one more one more image. Yeah, I think we had a closing image.
1: Maybe not. okay. Um, so we wanted to open everything up. What are what is our next? I, Chris was in the um, comments a second ago and had mentioned. Um, like mirror neurons and that empathy is now thought of as one of our senses.
2: Right. Right. Yeah. Right, and right, I, right. I found that fascinating. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go rabbit hole with that later on. Right, put that on the board of with the other senses that we cram into language and empathy. I mean, that's like the, the hardest thing to, to communicate.
4: Well, it very much is. And, um, Oh, sorry. Uh, if, if you are, um, participating in the chat and want your message just to go to the hosts and panelists, you can do that, but you can also send it to everyone directly if you would like to do that. Either way is fine, but just if it, you send it to hosts and panelists, only we will see it. Do we have, do we have
1: questions coming in yet? We were getting some really awesome comments. I like this one that was saying that like the The seven chakras could maybe be seen as senses as well. And I think that there are so many different things that have been um, shoved aside by various uh, formal religious practices throughout all of history. Um, for one reason or another that you know we know that they're very valid i mean it's it's kind of a by their fruits you shall know them sort of thing if if you're using you can use just about any sense for good you can use just about any sense for evil the goal here is to refocus and to make sure that you're using things for good yeah. and um i'm fascinated by the chakras I'm, I'm fascinated by you know like um like the concept of a third eye you know point because um, I am a Lyme disease survivor and spent many years kind of having to refocus my mind really strongly through um, brain fog. And when I was treated and I got better now, whenever I have something that, um, that hits that, like, like when I'm about to write a poem, that kind of woo, exciting sort of like thing, I will, I will feel it right here in my frontal lobe. Really? I can feel a tangible sensation. And, um, and I could see somebody, you know, writing that down 3000 years ago as, oh, obviously this is what this means, you know? Right. Um, so I, I, I love that kind of, I love that kind
4: of correlation. Chris, um, Chris shares something from Facebook, a comment there that, I just lost it. Um, the idea of senses is one of the reasons why purity, purity, modesty culture is so damaging. And that's in quotes, purity and modesty culture, separating ourselves from and hiding our bodies, especially the female body is completely detrimental to our experience here on earth. Body plus spirit equals so not something to be squashed and ashamed of.
1: Yeah. Thank and, you. And that, that brings us right back to the concept of the temperance unions too, because, you know, this is a, not an, not an offshoot of, but it is similar to uh some of the temperance uh, routines and diet strictures that they had um, that included similar things um, like uh, James H. Kellogg. We know Kellogg, um, we, I have cornflakes in my cabinet. I don't use them for the same function that he did because it was very important to him to control the body specifically because they thought that any sexual activity that was not procreative specifically. Um, and specifically, if you could not control your little factories, that um, you were going to become effeminate. That was, that was literally, you, they thought that, that you would. And so, um, so his whole goal was that. And so part of temperance was, you know, eating incredibly bland food, they wanted you to not drink anything or eat anything that was too hot or too cold, because again, they were on the humors. They had this concept of humors instead of germ theory. So they thought, you know, if you, if you drink something that's too cold or too hot, it might inflame the humors or like mess you up. And you're not only going to get sick, you're not going to be able to control yourself sexually. And you're not going to be able to control, you know, you might be, you know, to effeminate which is what they believed was true so um so it it, i feel like that's important to note as well just that that idea that they didn't want those things i mean and we both we know that putting spices on your food is not going to make you anything you know i mean it's not going to make you suddenly decide that you are, are going to not be able to control your body sexually in any way, but they genuinely thought that. And they also thought that if you, if you didn't control your body, um, in those ways specifically, that it would cause you not only to have disease, but, um, they related it to like, um, they didn't know about the inbreeding of like the Habsburgs yet. They thought that those qualities, um, were brought apart by sexual... Um, dysfunction or
2: hyperactivity. So, I'm I'm looking in Rough Stone Rolling um, w- right around this time that Richard's talking about uh, the saints and Kirtland. He talks about how it was later generations that used it as an obedience rod, um, which I think is really important. That you know when this came out, I I don't think it was intended to be um, a mark of obedience, but when I look at it from the perspective of these are instructions to prepare for a transformative experience, I see how it got put before baptism and um, how it became a part of the temple recommend questions. And I also see how, um, you know, we, we, we were the ones that kind of twisted that into um, um, an obedience. I, I, I just loved that obedience rod, you know, that there's a, a an implication that that rod is for correction or- <laughs> Well, I think that- I <laughs> A measuring that. stick. I, I don't know, to me, it was like, you know, the rod you get beat with rather than um, a devotional standard or um, devotional instructions.
1: I think it's critical to remember that we we, we have a tendency as humans, because we are just people, um, we we have a tendency to, um, we need to know that we are doing the right things in our lives and in the gospel. That's what we want.
2: I mean, I want it every day. I mean, that's... um, you know, the 10 commandments. It's like, just tell us, tell us what to do. Tell us what not to do. I mean, we, we, we ask that of our, of our leaders, even I
1: make a list every morning of things I need to get done in the day. And in the evening, I'm happier when I've checked things off my list because I'm like, look, I was a good human today that actually did things. We want checklists. We want a checklist of how to be a good Mormon. And I think that can be really complicated Um, in a lot of reasons, I mean, I have a lot of chronic pain and have, I mean, I started using a cane when I was 20. So uh, for a very long time now, and there was a time when I wanted to use, you know, like opioids, which don't work for me very well. But at the time I was considering using them, um, for a longer period of time. And I felt guilt because of it. I felt great guilt that, you know, for this exact same, you know, like conceptual, we we, we have this, you know, if you do all these things and you'll be good. And I wasn't. And so I thought, yeah. well, maybe I'm not doing things well enough. I think it can be very um complex for those of us that like to be very scrupulous towards things. Yeah. And I think that's what can happen over time in any organization. It just that just happens. If you had some,
4: you had a comment and a question from things a moment ago. Yeah, I'd like to bring something back in from the chat. Mary Margaret Dresbeck, Um And I'm gonna twist it, make it more, um, a little bit more of a compare and contrast question. Um, she says, thank you for your insights regarding the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit can be felt in ways other than the standard burning of the bosom, etc." And then she asks for more specific details on how, um, and how we experience the Holy Spirit other than the standard representations. But I'd, I'd like to ask you to um, compare some of the ways in which people in um, earlier uh, Mormon times experienced the Spirit and expressed that experience with ways that we perhaps now do not practice or recognize. I mean, when I think about the Book of Mormon and some of the ways that um, mass faintings play into um, an experience of the spirit, we don't sort of uh, have it that way, or it's, it's not a culturally appropriate way yeah. for us to, here in the United States, in Utah County, or South Carolina, Wait. or West Virginia, to... Oh, no, no, that's common in South Carolina. Okay. we got a lot of Holy rollers here.
2: Yeah, you're talking to two Southern girls and outside of Mormon culture, um, you know, the religious communities that, that we live in, you know, I've attended tent revivals and um, snake handling and things like that. And there's just a, a, a more freeing expression of if you are touched, you, you simply ex- exclaim that. And um, where our
4: meetings are much more reverent and reserved. So I'm, um, I'm going I'm to push back on your use of the word reverent. There, our meetings are much quieter. Quieter. And, yeah. I would, I would yes. not. Uh, I, I don't. I'll, want to I'll, I'll give you that. Sitting still in your chair as reverence, right. and yeah. um, I think as as we've seen in the. Um, in the songs the singing and the art and um, and then our closing prayer eventually' right. uh, will, we, we see different expressions of, of reverence uh, in those as we also see different expressions of ways of experiencing the, the spirit
1: yeah well I think that I my children one of my children is um, on the autism spectrum, one, one of my children is on the autism spectrum that I know of and has the same symptoms as my other children who are not diagnosed, um, and most of our friends are, and we, we hang out with a lot of people that, that are non-neurotypical in some way, and one of the things that comes up time and again with those that are LDS is that at some point somebody will ask me and be like, I don't get this burning in the bosom, does that mean I'm not good enough? Does it mean I'm not doing the right thing? And I think that some of our brains are wired differently. Um, I mean, I know some of our brains are wired differently. Um, when, when I was at the peak of Lyme, I had gotten to the point that I had aphasia so badly that I couldn't speak in full sentences. And I was just, I was a mess. It was a really, really big mess. But one of the things that I noticed was that I didn't feel that anymore. And I had always, I was always somebody that, you know, and like our family, we just, you know, we just talked about it and burning the bosom, and you feel, you you know, you feel impressed, you feel good right here, very peaceful and, you know, you're cool. And I didn't get that. And I thought, well, am I not worthy of that? And then after my brain had changed again, um, whether my brain was in the process of healing because that was normal for me to experience it the other way. Um, I had that happen again, but it occurred to me that, I mean, there's lots of people who have brains that that's not normal for them and they don't experience things that way. Um, For, for some of my friends um, that we've, you know, in ways that we've talked about, especially with like ADHD and ASD, um, we talk about like, you know, things that you get very excited about when you read something and your body just goes, yes, and it, it might be a yes in your mind or it might be a yes in your heart, but you follow that. Yes. I mean, whether you think of it as a gut instinct or whether you think of it as a witness of the spirit or whether you think of it as the universe patting you on own head and saying, yeah, go for it. Um, it doesn't have to be exactly the same format to be acceptable in good direction to your body. And um, I don't know, I'm still reading about that. I don't know everything about that. I just know my own experiences. I don't know everything about anything. I'm just loud
2: (laughs) all the time. (laughs) I'm trying to catch up in the chats. I think we've got some good comments from Maxine Hanks.
4: Kif, did you catch any of those? I saw those as mostly directed to you too. Oh, okay. Uh, And and, uh, so we
1: appreciate everybody being here today. I don't know. Yes. I'm I'm I wasn't in charge of watching time and I should have been. I'm sorry. We enjoyed and this then, company so much. Let's, let's is
0: there can we take another uh 5-10 minutes to have you respond to some of the comments and the and questions and then we'll continue to wind up with our, the rest of our expansive uh, wordlessness wisdom. Okay. May, may I suggest that we do the closing prayer now?
4: Because I know that some people have to leave and we're yes. already
0: ready to drop off. So if we do oh, the closing prayer yes. and then keep the, yes. keep the discussion that, going. Yeah, that'd be good. Yeah. Great idea. Okay. Listening to the Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Find more of our podcasts at
4: dialoguejournal.com/podcasts.